Have a seat. And if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I can get my guys to bring the board up. And um, I need a reader this morning. Who will read for us? Will anyone be bold enough to come up here to the mic and uh, read for us the first few verses of Colossians 3? I'm blinded. Come on. Yes. Another brave soul once more ventures into the, the stage. Introduce yourself. I'm Heather. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Heather, have we ever met before? Yes. Oh, okay. I was, you know, was All right. What we're doing, we've been going through uh, the book of Colossians. We've been doing this for several months now. And what we're trying to do is keep reminding you, the reason that we're going through verse by verse is uh, we find that the scriptures are the inspired word of God that they're uh, just a massive uh, treasure chest of truth. And we're mining that truth out, not just here on Sunday morning, but hopefully giving you encouragement in your own personal studies to go and study the Word and let the Holy Spirit teach you through your own studies of the Word. So we went through chapter 1 that talked uh, primarily about who Jesus is, and then chapter 2 is what Jesus did. And now we've come to chapter 3 where uh, Paul... The apostle is talking about what is our response to the rea reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay? So um, we're going to read through um, verse 11. Sure. 1 through 11. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. See, so hang on. So uh, he's tying us back to chapter 1 and 2. Since then, therefore. Um, so he's connecting chapter 1 and 2 to chapter 3. I won't do that again. I'm sorry. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. That's good. All right, thank you, well done. Uh, you know, when you do volunteer to come up and read, you get a discount on your tithe. Y'all didn't know that, did you? We'll see who volunteers next week. That's beautiful. What we've been studying is that Paul is saying, set our mind on things above, set our heart on things above. When we do those kind of things, then, uh, then it makes your stand work. All right? I don't help, Amy. I, all right. Okay, thank you. Is that the Lord is bringing uh, redemption to us. He wants to redeem for us our whole selves. That when we look back at what Christ has done, when we live in the present of what he's doing, and we look forward to what he promises to do when he comes again in glory, that those things, when we set our affections on them, when we set our mind and our thinking on those things, it starts to redeem us and to transform us into his likeness. And we talked several weeks ago about how it redeems us physically. That our, sexual, our sexuality, our sexual selves are redeemed. And the Lord wants us to apply that redemption to how we view ourselves and how we live our lives out when it regards to our bodies. 
Then we talked also a couple weeks ago about greed. Remember Dave talked about uh, the whole idea of idolatry and that what Paul is saying that that redemption also flows into our desires. What do we want? Uh, what do we long for? But then this week, uh, it's kind of interesting. We're going to focus on the passage where it says, uh, but rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips, and do not lie to each other. That it's not only that he redeems us physically, it's not only that he redeems my desires, but he also redeems my emotions. How is that possible? I mean, how is it possible for the Lord to come in and begin to redeem how I feel? You know, I grew up thinking, uh, well, this was actually taught to me, is that uh, once you become a Christian, have you ever seen this illustration? Let me see if I can do this as a train, all right? And this is the engine that the, what pulls our lives are facts. Have you ever seen this? Then the next car is faith and then the next car is feelings that my feelings are the caboose to my life that they're constantly yielding themselves to faith and to facts and you know growing up with this illustration uh, I began to really believe that this here was the least of all things that my emotions really are their second-class citizens in my life. Matter of fact, I really began to believe that it was my emotions that began to hinder my ability to live out this redemptive life of Christ. And so it was easy from that place to step into believing that emotions are bad, that emotions can't be trusted, that my heart is deceptive above all else, and so my emotions are deceptive. And it was easy to take from a step from this place of they can't be trusted, those evil emotions, into a place of avoiding them. And even into a place that when I feel them, they produce for me shame. I'm angry. It produces shame. And what Paul is talking about is we have to be very careful because our hearts are idle factories. They're constantly producing substitute gods. And we can see that how we can turn our sexuality into a god. We can also see how we can turn our desires for cars and houses and money and for people and those kind of things. We can see how that could become a false god. But how do our emotions become an idol? How do our emotions become a false god? Imagine this. If I believe that this right here is bad and I start to avoid them, I actually create an idol out of my emotions because my life now becomes about controlling my emotions and keeping my emotions out of my life and I'm expending so much energy trying to keep from feeling that that actually becomes the idol in which controls my life. It becomes the, the place in which I serve and commit myself to and obey. We often talk about this here, maybe you've heard this, is that when we live like that, have you ever been at the swimming pool in the summertime with a big beach ball. And when we were kids in high school, you know, it was who could hold the beach ball under the water the longest or how deep could you go with it. And, you know, let me, trust me, you don't have time for other things, especially if the beach ball is big and you were able to get it underwater. 
It takes every muscle and every attention, everything about you to keep that ball from exploding to the surface. When I conclude that my emotions are bad, when I conclude that they are, they are anti-Jesus, then like keeping the beach ball under the water, I dedicate my life to keeping my emotions under the surface. You see how that can be controlling? You tracking with me? Yeah? All right. A couple of you. Well, so, I'm hip. <clears throat> I'm of the new culture. I'm the new Jesus generation, right? So, I've got a new train, all right? The Jesus train. And what I'm going to do in this generation is... I'm going to change the train around a little bit. Okay, faith. It's still a triple F train, all right? <clears throat> but my feelings are now the engine. And what follows behind my feelings are facts. <clears throat> and then what follows behind that is faith. But these two can be interchanged. And what I'm saying there is that that we start to believe that the only thing that's really authentic or real or true in life is how I feel. That in our culture, feelings can be elevated to a place of godlike status. That what you feel is the most important possible truth you could ever acquire in your own life is how are you doing emotionally? Because how I feel determines what I believe to be true. And what I believe to be true is what I'm going to put my faith in. Okay, I got those backwards. You know what I'm talking about? And you see how feelings can become an idol in that sense is because if I don't feel like, like, like let's go back to sexuality. If, if I'm in love with a person, then really I can determine any expression I want of my sexuality, right? Because I'm in love. I feel love for that person. And we serve a God who's love, Right? And because God is love, how could God ever say that what I'm feeling is wrong if what I'm feeling is love? So regardless of what scripture says, my feelings now have mutated the facts of truth. And that new truth is what I'm going to put my faith in. In other words, that's where I'm going to live my life. And my feel feelings have now become an idol. They've replaced God as the most important thing in my life that I serve. It may look like this, that uh, that my feelings are the only authentic thing, that my feelings blow me like the wind, you know, and that what really matters is how I'm feeling today. I may be up, you know, we all lost an hour of sleep last night. Does anybody feel depressed about that? You know, or, you know, we're just blown. Our lives go up, they're down, they're happy, they're sad. And when we live like that, we're looking for things that we can use to manipulate the way that we feel, Right? What can I get that'll make me feel happy? If happy is what it is that you want to feel. Some of you write your best music when you're miserable. All right? And so I'm looking for something that can make me miserable. They rule us. Paul calls us into an understanding of how the gospel brings redemption to our emotions. And we're going to talk about that. Because he says put off anger. So let's use anger since he used it. And let me say a couple things about anger. One is, is that he isn't saying that anger is a sin. I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's several places in Scripture where it says that Jesus got angry. 
So he's not qualifying that the feeling of anger is a sinful thing. Jesus had it. Now let me go on to say this. And emotions are not good or bad. I know, man, that, that may not be the nuclear bomb in your life right now that, that it really is to grasp that, that what you feel is not good or bad. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, let me try to illustrate it by trying to erase this, all right? All right, that's not good, all right? But y'all stick with me. And uh, let me try a different color marker. Maybe that'll help. Let's imagine, can you see that? You know, whenever we see an iceberg and the tip of the iceberg is above the water, what is it that we can assume? I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. There's, I'm assuming that what you said is in complete agreement with what I'm about to say, all right? Therefore, you are brilliant, all right? Is that below the surface, there's a lot more iceberg than there is above the surface. And what Paul is talking about here. When he says anger, actually the Greek word talks about this as smoldering. It's like hot coals. But then he goes on to list a bunch of stuff that I believe is directly attached to undealt with anger. What does he list here? The first thing he lists here is rage. You know what the, the exact Greek interpretation of that word rage in that text? It is fire that is started in straw. Yes, thank you. that was a baby amen, all right? That smoldering fire, all of a sudden now, it, this mountain of anger underneath the surface has exploded to the surface in rage. What's another way that it shows itself? It's in malice. See, rage, when I, when I allow anger to come to the surface in my rage, I'm now allowing anger to change my conviction about what I believe. What I mean by that is that I'm allowing myself to hold something against another person. When this anger, for whatever reason, and it may be justifiable that I'm anger, angry, when it comes to the surface in rage, it's now I'm giving myself permission to have the conviction that my anger against another person is justifiable. Let's go to the next step. Malice. It's viciousness that's bent on doing someone harm. Not only now do I give myself permission to be convicted in my heart to be against another person, now I'm maliciously starting to plan how I'm going to be against that person. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever really been ticked off at somebody? Thank you. All right. This side over here is an angry crowd. These guys are gentle, all right? Now, we all have been angry against someone, and you can see it in your own mind because this right here, from rage to malice. I can't believe they did that. Ooh, they are. It happens just like that, doesn't it? Then it goes even further, slander. Now, not only am I planning, now I'm speaking against someone with the intent of doing them harm. Now I'm putting words to that which only existed in my heart. My lovely heart. Now it's come to words, and I'm slandering them. Then it turns from slander into abusive language. You blessed person. You see the progression? And then finally, and here, 
here comes what I call, in relation to last week's topic on the wrath of God, where we even create our own hell, here comes what I think is the final level of hell, is that I lie. And why is that the final level of hell? Because whenever we look through scripture at people that have lied, from Cain, when he lied about he doesn't know where his brother Abel is, to Abraham, when the Pharaoh wanted to marry his wife Sarah, and he said, she's just my sister, no really, take her. What do we see? We see this pattern, lying is, is a step of self-protection. And what do I have to do to move into a category of protecting myself? I have to believe that I'm the only one left that will do that. Lying is the work of a desperate person who's fearful that they are all alone now. And others are against them, and so is the Lord. And therefore, I must talk my way out of this to protect myself. When emotions become our idols, they will consume us, and they will also consume our community. Because they will be used against us as well as those around us. So how are we careful? How do we take off anger? Paul tells us to take it off. He makes no excuses about it. He says, hey, this is not where you're supposed to live. If you're in Christ, this is not what the Lord wants for you. All right? What do we do with it? All right. First thing. This won't take but just a minute. And then we'll go back to singing. Acknowledge it. I know that sounds so simple, doesn't it? That is miserably difficult. Acknowledge what's going on in your life. Know yourself. Have the freedom to call it out. This week, Maggie, I'm going to use you again two weeks in a row. Wow. Okay, bonus points, all right? My daughter, we were talking. She goes to Hillsborough High School, and we were just talking about school and about life, and she was telling me about this, these people that she knows, and this girl, she's dating this guy. I can't follow this, all right? That she's dating this guy, he's a nice guy, but she used to date this other guy, all right? The guy that she's dating now hates the guy that she used to date, all right? And wants to beat him up, right? Is that right? Wants to beat him up? All right. Yeah. Wants to do violence to him, all right? He, he is angry and he's raged. And so I said, okay, now wait a minute. He's got the girl, yet he hates the old boyfriend. And I, I said to her, what's going on there? And she goes, I don't know. You know, she, he just hates that guy. He doesn't want to be around him or anything. The old boyfriend, he just can't stand him. And I said, what do you think would happen instead of him going up and hitting him? What if we went up to him and he said, hey, man, I, I know that I'm really, I've really been, you know, kind of standoffish. I've had some really negative emotions towards you. And I just need to be honest with you that I'm threatened by you. Because, you know, you used to date the girl that I'm dating now. And, you know, we've only been dating for a couple of weeks. And I really feel insecurity in my relationship with her. And in that insecurity, I'm transferring that to you and fearing that maybe you're going to come back and steal her heart. And so I'm projecting all that on you. Instead of dealing with my own insecurities and my own threatenedness by you, I'm really pouring it out on you in anger. And I just want to ask you to forgive me for that. Maggie goes, What? You see what I'm talking about is it takes a certain level of maturity for us to come to grips with what's really going on in my heart. To know myself. Listen to what Augustine said in his confessions. How can you draw close to God when you are so far from yourself? He even prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. 
St. Teresa in her book, The Way of Perfection, she said almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. In Peter Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which I recommend if you've never read it, he says this, when we deny our pain, when we deny our losses and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform, we transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. So hear what I'm about to say. And this is going to sound crazy to some of you that grew up in a tradition that constantly said the other thing. You are free to feel. Hear that in the back? You are free to feel. Every emotion on the scale of human emotion. You are free to feel it. You're free. You're free to own it. You're free to celebrate it. You're even free to thank God for it. Thank God I feel angry. Thank God I feel happy. Thank God I feel sad. Thank God I feel depressed. Thank God I feel whatever emotion you want to fill in the blank. You're free. Now you may say, well, what's so hard about that? Name it, claim it. Let me tell you, when you get up in this category up here, we are masters at never claiming what's going on with us. Right? Like, have you ever slandered somebody? Have you ever said, oh, I can't believe they did that. That person is, what? And someone's called you on it and says, why are you saying that about that person? Do we go here? No. Where do we go? I have every right to do and say this about that person because do you know what they did? We're not owning our emotions. We're not admitting what's going on. We're keeping it up here so that we can justify by the actions of other people the actions that we are committing. It happens all the time in marriage. <laughs> well, some marriages, not Renee and I's. We actually have reached a place of perfection. <clears throat> I moved to Oklahoma and... Uh, no, I'm kidding. You know, because in arguments in marriage, we've said this before, that what happens when you get into an argument in marriage? You start making these remarkable sentences about you. Well, you said, you did. You, 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 you. And we start pay, playing the blame game because if I can put blame on the other person, it justifies what I'm doing, okay? But imagine the radical journey in a relationship, especially a marriage, when you go from you to I. What's going on? I'm hurt. Now we've gotten off the merry-go-round of circumstances in the blame game, and now we've gotten into the place of intimacy where we're asking another person to see us. And how do we do that? That we open our eyes first to seeing ourselves. I hurt. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I'm listening to a siren. All right. Good beat. Easy to dance to. This week, uh, well, last week, Renee came to me and said, hey, I want to build a walkway out in the front of our house, and uh, can I do that? I'm like, hey, that's great. And she goes, no, can I do whatever I want? Now, let me let me qualify here that in the front of our house we have these two trees they're like this tall and they're like they're like bushes on a stick all right and they're like stick 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 bush all right 
And Renee says, the day we moved in, I mean, like the first day we moved in, she goes, we got to get rid of those. Those things are disgusting. And I'm like, no, I like them. So for seven years now, it's been, we got to get rid of those. No, I like them. All right. And there's been this little tug of war of preferences. And so she goes, can I do whatever I want? Without thinking, I stepped into her trap. <laughs> all right. I'm walking out the door. Sure, do whatever you want. So I come home from work that day, and those two trees are cut down. <laughs> Thank you, women, for acknowledging that. Renee is a strong woman. So what did I do? She'd been working all day building this path, expanding the garden. I looked past all of that and saw the trees and said, why did you do that? She goes, well, I'm not going to tell you what she said. <laughs> but then I went a step further and said, what were you thinking? Now, what do you think I meant by that question? Was I really asking her a question or was I making a statement? What was the statement I was making? What? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I was feeling. But my feeling was dictating what I was saying. And what was I saying? It wasn't a question. It was a statement, wasn't it? Anybody know what it is? <laughs> Bingo! How could you do that? You know, here's the sad thing, is that I, I, I wasn't mad about the trees. I was sad because I like the trees. And that, that's so stupid, isn't it? That's so stupid. It's not stupid. It's a real emotion. It's okay for me to say, I'm sad because the trees are cut down. I like those trees. That makes me sad. And to deal with my own heart. But because I couldn't acknowledge where I was because I'm a man and man should not get sad about little trees that are really bushes on sticks, all right? I can't deal with that. So what do I do? I shame Renee. I shame Renee and I make her responsible for my inability to deal with what I'm feeling. You see that? So when I say acknowledge it, I'm not saying a small thing. I'm saying a huge thing. See, we are free to feel sad. We're free to be angry. We're free to be happy. We're free to feel the whole gamut of emotions. You know, in the Old Testament, we see it. Saul, Saul was very much a man that was not self-aware. He was not aware of his own fear that drove him in everything that he did. And because he wasn't ever aware of his fear, he was never able to deal with his fear. So when David came along, he was threatened by David. He wasn't excited about God's ordained work for the kingdom of the coming of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. He was threatened because he lived out of his own fear, but he wouldn't acknowledge it and deal with it. Then comes along David. And what does David do? Man, David is just brilliant at living down here and letting it impact up here. If you don't believe me, go to Psalm 13. What does he say in Psalm 13? God, where are you? You've abandoned me. I feel all alone. But then later in the Psalm, he says, but I will trust in you. That's where I want to take us because I don't just stay in my emotions. If I did that, they would continue to be an idol. I acknowledge them and I recognize them, but now I bring them 
to a place of transformation and redemption by bringing them to the gospel. What do I mean by that? In 2 Corinthians 3, 17, it says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Meaning, I'm gazing upon the Lord, and as I look on the Lord, he is transforming me into his likeness, even in my emotions. Well, how does he do that? All right, we're almost out of time, but John Piper put it this way, most of our bitterness and anger toward others is rooted in an inability to be profoundly amazed at Christ's love for us and our sin. Since Paul started with anger, we're going to stay with anger. How do I deal with anger? How do I bring this emotion, after I acknowledge it, into the light of the cross and the gospel? In Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus talking to his disciples. And Peter asked a very great question. He goes, he goes Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brothers? And then he answers the question. Seven times? Remember this? And what is really Peter saying? Peter's saying, how many times do I have to forgive this person before I can write them off? He's not asking, how do I live in the world of forgiveness? He says, you know, how much of this world of forgiveness do I have to trudge through before I can get to where I really want to be, which is writing somebody off that I don't like? And Jesus tells a story. He says there was a servant who owned this man. He owed this man millions of dollars. And he couldn't pay. And the rich ruler that brought him and said, where's my money? And he says, please. And he begged. And he said, have mercy. He said, I'll, I'll find some way. I'll find a way to pay you back. Just please don't throw me into prison. And so the ruler said, hey, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to give you time. I'm going to release you from the debt. I'm going to completely do more than what you're even asking me to do. You're free. That debt is no longer on you. Go and live your life. And people are amazed. <gasps> wow, millions of dollars. And then he leaves the, the ruler's palace and is walking down the street and he sees a guy that owns him a dollar. And he grabs him and he says, where's that dollar you owe me? And the guy says the same thing that he just said to the ruler. He said, please have mercy on me. Don't throw me in prison. I'll find the money somehow, some way. And he said, nope, too bad. Go grab your wife and your kids. I'm throwing you all in prison until you pay me back. So the ruler heard about this and called the man back into his presence. And listen to what he said. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, he said. I can canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? All that to say this, Jesus is directly connecting how I'm living out of my life with how he is living out his life for me. That my ability to deal with when someone has wronged me, to give them forgiveness, is directly tied to the depth in which I understand the forgiveness that I have gotten from the Lord. It's all throughout Scripture. The Apostle John says the only way we know how to love is when we allow ourselves to be deeply loved. If you're a poor lover, what do you need? You need to understand more of how you're loved. If you're a poor server, if you say, man, I really don't just give my life to serve other people. I really struggle with being a good servant. It's because you have a very small view of how God serves you through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have a struggling time forgiving other people, Jesus is saying you have a very small view of how much the Lord has forgiven you.
Hmm. It's funny, when we were kids, um, it seemed like for a stretch of three or four years, we all got kaleidoscopes for Christian, Chris, Christmas. Have you ever gotten one of those? Those little things you look through the hall and there's, I don't know what's in them. Kaleidoscope magic, you know? And we discovered quickly that if you shine them on a Christmas tree light, it changes everything in there. And then you go to another color and it changes. And, you know, what's amazing about kids is that we could have done that for hours. We did do that for hours. It's back before. This is my part of the sermon where I scold all of you that have video games, you know. When I was a kid, man, we just had kaleidoscopes. And we were thankful for it, too. You know, I won't do that. All right. Um, but there was a wonderment to it. What I mean is that there, it was like magic to us. And we never grew tired of what's the different shape going to be? What's the different color going to be? And we just ran around the house saying, oh, come and look at this through the kaleidoscope. Oh, have you come look at this through the kaleidoscope. Have you gone to the mirror and looked at yourself in the kaleidoscope? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, put up the wonder and the color and the majesty of God's love for you. Put that up to your eye. And then look at everything in your life through that. Everything. Including my emotions. I don't avoid my emotions. I acknowledge them. But then I put the kaleidoscope of the truth that God has forgiven me for everything through the cross of Jesus Christ. That Christ, who had no sin and had no debt, went to the cross to pay my debt. And my debt was enormous. Enormous. And because he paid my debt, when I am looking at that, and then I look over at the little debt that you owe me, Jesus is saying we are transformed into his likeness. We are in awe of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of the kaleidoscope of his grace and love for us. Which allows me now to put this emotion in a place to where it now serves at the foot of the cross. I dethrone my emotion as king of my life. And now I tell my emotion, you are happy to be here. But you will bend your knee with the rest of me. My body, my desires, and even my emotion will serve at the foot of the cross because there is one Lord in my life. And everything in me needs to yield to his lordship and his guidance in me. Make sense? So, we're out of time. Let me just ask you this. Because it's a beautiful thing that my Savior gives me the freedom to feel all these things but not to be prisoners of the things that I feel. That he gives me the full right to acknowledge everything that's going on in my heart and then come to the kaleidoscope of his great love for me and to view it in light of his gospel. And I want to ask you this, where are you this morning? See, some of you can't answer that question because a long time ago you turned the emotion button off. Passion has gone. You're not feeling anything. And I want to say to you, that's not a way to live. That's less than human. Some of you are ravaged by your emotions. Where are you this morning? Let me go back to a little point that I said that I've kind of passed over. And I'll conclude with this. Thank God for where you are. Because of where you are 
is a place full of shame, then how can you ever allow the Lord to meet you where you are? You're going to spend your whole life trying to get to a different place, trusting that if you get to that place, God will meet you better there. Thank God where you are. Thank him for what's going on in you. Because is it possible that what's going on in you is a springboard? Really? Like gymnastics, it's a springboard into the brilliance of the Lord wowing you with his wonder. In other words, do you need to forgive somebody? All right. Why is that all right? Because the Lord is about to explode. If you'll put on the kaleidoscope, a deeper understanding of how much he has forgiven you. Are you sad? Yes. Woohoo! Why do we celebrate that? Because now we can bring that sadness into the place of the cross and we find a Savior that suffered for us. A, a Savior that wept with us and wept for us. A Savior that felt those feelings and meets us in that place and brings us comfort. Whatever it is, bring it into the cross and let the Lord unfold for you the beauty, the mystery, the dynamics of the colors of his love for you and his grace for you. And then don't forget, everything Paul just wrote in this passage was about community. Isn't it? We're going to be talking about over the next three or four weeks uh, what to put on. And how do we now, now that we've taken everything off, how do we put something on now? That's going to be an exciting journey. But wherever you are this morning, would you thank God for that? Bring that to the cross and let him minister to you in that place? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning that, that Lord, you, uh, you love us so much that we've been made in your image. And what beautiful complexities you've made us of people with minds and hearts of desire and, and crazy emotions. Thank you, Lord, that it's just a beautiful picture of, of just how you've created us. But Lord, all three of those things can become idols to us and control our lives. And I pray, Lord, for my friends here this morning that we would be the people that would not be afraid to acknowledge what's going on inside of our hearts. That we would not be afraid to see where our emotions are. But we'd also, as a community, that we would deal righteously with our emotions. Through the gospel. Learning how to forgive. Learning how to be forgiven. Learning how to love and learning how to care. And dealing with our own heart struggles in a way that's redemptive. Thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.